The Flight Deck is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the donors who sustain the Museum of Flight. To support this podcast and the museum's other educational initiatives, visit museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley. The history of flight attendants in the United States is a fascinating area of study because of how unique the airplane cabin has been as a workplace. It's well known that it's an environment that was largely dominated by women, and those women were on the leading edge of feminist activism. The history of the gay men, who still make up an unusually large percentage of the flight attendant labor force, is less well known. Author and Associate Professor of History at Kansas State University, Phil Tiemeyer, covered this topic in his book, Plain Queer, Labor, Sexuality, and AIDS in the History of Male Flight Attendants. Now, while the book covers almost a century of history, Phil sat down with me for an interview that focused on the HIV-AIDS crisis and the way two gay male flight attendants with Pacific Northwest connections left their mark on history. A content note about this episode. This is a conversation about HIV-AIDS, And as it is transmitted either through contact with blood or as an STD, it's hard to honestly discuss it without referencing the realities of human sexuality. This episode is not explicit, it's an academic exploration of history, but some listeners might consider the content mature. With that in mind, let's welcome Phil to the podcast. Phil, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invite, Sean. (laughs) Well, we're here to talk a bit about the flight attendant world. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Just this week, a friend of mine kind of posted a a news uh, clip that um, that flight male the the flight attendant profession is statistically speaking the gayest profession that we still have in the United States. Uh, So, uh, male flight attendants, despite being in the minority, are very much a prominent fixture for uh, a lot of us in 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 the gay world. Uh, It's been a place that's been you know, attracting, uh, it's been a welcoming enough place to work now for about 40 years. So, uh, and, and, and definitely the, the love affair that many of us have for flying, uh, is something that seems to be kind of shared in the DNA for so many, uh, LGBTQ folks. Well, and it's funny you say that because when I shared your research with, um, a group once, Afterwards, uh, uh, a, a male flight attendant who was one of the in in that first batch when men were allowed to be hired again. Yeah. So he's he's long retired. He came up to me afterwards, uh, and as far as I know, he's straight and he's married to a woman. And he said, you know, when I was hired, and his wife was also a flight attendant. He said, when I was hired, like they wanted to make sure I was married, and the subtext really was that if I'm married to a woman, that. I'm not going to be <laughs> homosexual. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so even in the 70s, that would have been the early 70s, uh, it was still a little bit stigmatized. The air- airlines didn't know <laughs> what they were getting, and they wanted you know a little bit of quality control, if you will, in the homophobic age to make sure that um, not everyone that they were going to hire uh, who was a man was also going to be gay because they were afraid of 
you know, the uh, public relations ramifications thereof. Yeah. So let's, um, let's zoom in just a little bit and then we'll zoom back out to kind of this bigger picture that you've, you've been sharing. So we're going to talk today about two individuals, uh, Gare Trainer and Gaetan Duga. Gare is a Pacific Northwest person. Why don't we start with him? Uh, if you were making a documentary about him, what would kind of be your, your two or three sentence summary of, of that story for the executives? What would be your pitch? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Gare Trainer, born Gary uh, in uh, rural Oregon, um, is someone that the historical record has very little knowledge of. I was able to find his name in a couple ways, in a couple important ways, really, and we'll talk about that more in depth. But um, but otherwise, I mean, this is this is someone that um, that unfortunately uh, lived a, 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 what by all accounts seems like a, a pretty good life in, based in LA and San Francisco as a United Airlines flight attendant in the 1970s and into the 1980s, uh, contracted HIV AIDS, um, one of the very kind of early generations thereof. Uh, so by 1982, he had a diagnosis, right? Um, and, you know, unfortunately passed away in 1987. Um, and uh, it's been really hard to find people who know anything about Gare. Um, but in those brief five years, 82 to 87, uh, he's vitally important for uh, the flight attendant profession, for uh, gay activism, for HIV activism, because he was one of the very first people in the United States who, uh, whose employer tried to permanently remove him from the workplace, even though his doctors said, no, he's good enough to work. Uh, and he fought back and he won the first kind of legal type proceeding, a, a labor arbitration case uh, in which uh, it was decided, kind of like Philadelphia, the movie, that uh, people with AIDS uh, still had the right to be treated like all of us. If you're healthy enough to work, then you get to work. Uh, and that's why Gare's important. And shifting kind of the same question for Gaetan, a very different tone to his story and definitely someone who's very much remembered, even if people don't know his name. Yeah. So Gaetan is a bit more famous, maybe not by his real name, Gaetan Dugas, uh, but by the moniker Patient Zero. This was a Quebecois uh, flight attendant um, who flew for Air Canada. Um, pretty local to y'all uh, in Vancouver for much of his career with Air Canada, though he was based all over. Uh, certainly ended his, his career at Air Canada based at, at Vancouver. And um, Gaetan was even earlier than Gare in terms of when he contracted HIV AIDS. Uh, by 1980, he was already sick. And by 1982, he was uh, one of the first, say, 250 patients in the United States who were getting medical care for this crazy new epidemic. Gaetan uh, is famous, like I said, as patient zero because of what happens after his death. Uh, he ends up getting sort of uh, scapegoated, targeted as perhaps the man who brought AIDS to America. 
Um, and being a flight attendant was a big part of that story that we'll talk about. So let's zoom back out then. The the context here, you mentioned earlier that the profession, I mean, to this day, there's a lot of stereotypes about flight attendants, to be clear. It's not true about everybody, obviously. No, not at all. Not at all. No, it's a pretty diverse workplace in all ways. Uh, of course. Uh, but it is a unique workplace in some of it, so much of its history that's been documented both in like, it's one of the few workplaces that was dominated by women. Uh, that That's a whole nother discussion that's fascinating in labor history of uh, a union that was really by, for, and led by women and, and a pretty essential workplace in the country. Um, but you also said that it was a, has been a relatively safe place for a long time for for gay men. Can you just share a little bit about how, how that happened, how we got there, especially in those early days, which we think of being a, a pretty homophobic kind of, we think of the lavender scares of the yeah. Cold War and stuff like that. And, so. and honestly, not even this profession was immune from it. In fact, um, while we think of it as a pretty gay open profession, uh, in the reality, if you kind of do the whole trajectory of aviation history, and there's only been airlines effectively since 1928, so it's only not even 100 years old. Uh, but... Um, you know, what happens is that in the early years, there's plenty of men who are working at airlines in the United States. So from 1928, 29, 30, all the way to World War II, there's plenty of men working in this profession. Um, they increasingly outnumbered by women, but, uh, you know, uh, very prominent in the profession. But what happens after World War II, and you mentioned the Lavender Scare, and, and you know, there was no more homophobic decade in American history, I would argue, than the 1950s. And what ended up happening is that after World War II, when the men come back from war, many of them re-enter these jobs as flight attendants that they had. But starting in the 1950s, because of homophobia, airlines that used to hire men in the United States, Pan Am, Eastern are the two big ones, they stopped. And the reason that they stopped was very much tied to homophobia. Um, there were a couple scandals of one big one in the city of Miami in which a flight attendant was kind of caught in a, a sexual scandal. And he was actually, yeah, he, it was not a good story, but he was murdered uh, on Lover's Lane by a male prostitute. Um, and it, it was big news, right? And a huge embarrassment to Eastern Airlines, his employer, to the other airlines who kind of in the United States in the 1950s were like, we just don't want to take this risk of having another scandal hit the papers, right? So by the mid 50s, even though, right, uh, historically speaking, this career was always open to men, um, they stopped hiring new ones, right? The old ones didn't go away. They continued, <laughs> you know, there were, by 1968, about two or 3% of flight attendants were still men. Um, but then there, the civil rights moment in the United States, especially, and, and here as, as, as people doing the history of LGBTQ America have to kind of acknowledge uh, our struggles are kind of tied together very closely with women's struggles in the workplace, especially to gain more footing for women, ultimately could help other sort of gender queer folks like us 
gay men, uh, lesbians, uh, bisexuals, transgender eventually, who could uh, kind of uh, work the same sort of civil rights magic that uh, women did to open certain workplaces. In this case, it was reversed. This was a women's oriented career by 1968. And men started using the civil rights language of equal access to all workplaces to start to try to apply to become stewards, right? To become flight attendants. Um, so they won. I mean, the cases went through the courts and so forth. But by 1971, it was clear that the courts had sided for men entering a women's workplace that airlines across the United States would have to hire men equally on equal terms as women if they wanted to be flight attendants. And every one of them did it. The only big one that didn't was Southwest Airlines, who stubbornly refused to hire men into the 1980s when they too were sued uh, by a man um, wanting to be a flight attendant, and he also won. So you say that there were a lot of gay men in that role, and then also that the airlines tolerated that. So why, it's kind of a two-pronged question here, but why were gay men kind of drawn to that career? And <laughs> why did the airlines accept it in this pretty macho, masculine era of the 50s? Uh, yeah, so again, not in the 50s, but by the 70s, uh, gay men and all men had the opportunity to apply for these jobs, right? And, uh, and I think uh, at that moment, uh, what was attracting gay men to the profession? Great question. I mean, um, th there's a variety of reasons. Uh, one is that um, historically speaking, if you were out as a gay person in even in the late 60s, early 70s, you probably weren't going to get the six-figure job at an accounting firm or a law firm, etc. A lot of LGBTQ folks were being forced into service jobs or, you know, kind of think of hairdressing, uh, think of florist shops, think of you know, nursing and these other kinds of, of positions that were um, lower income, uh, lower uh, demand for skills, right, in terms of getting a college education was was somewhat optional, uh, not for nursing, but for, for uh, other sorts of positions. And you know what? Being a flight attendant was sort of the creme de la creme of these service professions, right? Because this was relatively equivalent to being uh, uh, a waiter or a host at a restaurant and yet way more cool, way more fancy, <laughs> way more attractive just because you got to see the world while you were doing it. Right. Um, and so there was a, a natural kind of, you know, gay men were clustered in these service jobs. And then this job opens up that's like service job plus coolness. Why not? You know, um, other men kind of talk about uh, why they were attracted to the profession. Well, you know what? They loved kind of that attention to detail that requ that's required of a good flight attendant, someone who's careful about how they present themselves, courteous, kind, always smiling, uh, wants to give everyone a maximally uh, pleasing kind of adventure. So that kind of counted. Um, 
Others were attracted to the way I am, sort of just the flair of the industry, right? I mean, these were well-dressed people, cool uniforms, uh, <laughs> stylish interiors. I mean, living in hotels that, you know, a lot of them are five-star and it's just like, it's kind of posh, you know? And so <laughs> there's that. I mean, the other side of the coin is like, well, why did airlines tolerate? And um, my research showed that uh, for the most part, airlines were probably aware that they were hiring a lot of uh, gay men by the 1970s, but they weren't sure who was who. <laughs> they never asked in the interview process. Um, <clears throat> what really ended up happening is that the hiring committees at airlines were at one point in the job interview process, there is actually kind of a round table of uh, flight attendants that interview you and make a recommendation to the company about whether they should hire you or not. Now, by 1970, 72, 73, 74, these hiring committees are made up entirely of women, right? Because they're the only ones flying for most of the airlines. And so what these women are looking for in male applicants is the same thing they're looking for in female applicants, a good team player, someone who listens to their coworkers. And, and um, interestingly, and this says a lot about patriarchy, right? The, the men who were able to listen to women who were good team players, who could listen, right, knowing that they were going to go into a workplace taking orders from a more senior stewardess, um, the men who could play this role turned out to be gay men, right? Um, not that gay men are perf have perfect scores in terms of being non-sexist, but I think because of our oppression based on sexism in our own lives, maybe even by the 1970s, we were a little bit better listeners to women, a little bit more collegial with women, a little bit more willing than most men to take orders from women. <laughs> so what did having these gay men and these presumably straight women kind of working in this very tight knit environment, what did that do for the women? Like how did, how did it expand their views and their worlds or did it? Yeah. So, I mean, conventional wisdom might suggest that if you've got a women-identified workplace and women finally have seniority and women finally have power in labor unions and then men come in, that's a threat, right? Um, by most accounts, it went the other way, right? Because there already were men working in planes with these women. They were in the cockpit. They were pilots and co-pilots and so forth. Um and those men in the cockpit tended to be more conventionally sexist in their behavior, heterosexist in their expectations that they would put on stewardesses. Hey, honey, why don't you make a cup of coffee for me? Or, hey, what are you doing tonight at the crew hotel because I'm lonely? Um, that sort of stuff, right? Um, and so when these gay men, <laughs> again, not all are gay, but when this coat cohort of gay men become co-workers with these women, there's a lot of synergy. They can now go out and have fun together without the, the threat of sexual harassment or sexual abuse. They have a lot more in common generationally because they tend to be younger than the pilot corps. Um, and it changes crew dynamics in a way that sort of gives the back of the plane 
a little bit more clout than the cockpit, uh, at least in in the free time, and in, at least you know uh, in terms of how things are being managed in the back of the plane regarding passengers and their safety and comfort. Yeah, for sure. And then there's other broader changes happening in the industry at this time around safety. And again, the the discussion of like the women's perspective on this and how their, their fights, it's there's so many fascinating books, people that everyone needs to read about all of these topics. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so at, at some point here, the HIV AIDS, HIV AIDS as a disease emerges. Can you set the stage a little bit kind of not necessarily within aviation, just in the wider yeah. U.S. about what we know about the early days of HIV AIDS and how it impacted the community? Sure. I, I think the epidemiology of AIDS, the, the origin story of AIDS and the way it got to the United States is absolutely fascinating. I won't bore you with all the details, but we probably, most of us kind of listening and uh, in the audience know that AIDS is a disease that originated in uh, Southern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. And, uh, and that was true, right? I mean, uh, it seems to have crossed over from uh, a, some sort of monkey species in the 1920s uh, into the human species and made its way along colonial corridors of power from, say, Cameroon down to the Congo, following river routes. And then, you know, once it got to the Congo, Kinshasa, uh, the capital city of the Congo, becomes an epicenter of AIDS by the 1950s. Well, that's still, you know, a continent away from the United States. Um, cool theories, it, it, really good work has been done in the, the origins of, of uh, the virus by looking at old samples and kind of doing blood tests on historical samples from the 1950s into the present day. And what seems to have happened is that um, it, it could be that Haitians were the, the key connector between the Congo and North America. A lot of after independence uh, of Congo from the Belgians, there were not enough educated Africans. Thank you, European colonialism, for keeping African people destitute for uh, decades. Um, so Haitians were better educated, went over to work in the Congo, uh, made money, came home, uh, and brought this disease with them to the island of Haiti. And then, thanks to immigration patterns, uh, Haiti's own struggles with poverty and colonialism from uh, back in the 1700s. Uh, there's desperation in the island of Haiti, uh, encourages migration to the United States. Um, and so it seems that the virus enters the United States at multiple points of entry in the course of the late 1960s at the least. And then it's here and it's spreading. And guess what? No one notices because the people who are getting it are tend to be poor and non-white. And you know what? If you don't have, if that's your makeup, uh, chances are you don't have access to doctors in this country, right? Uh, in the 1960s, 70s, and you know, it's still a problem today. So it goes, it, it starts to circulate and it's unnoticed from say the 1960s all the way until 1981, uh, 82. This is the moment when there's more and more 
people who are candidates to get this otherwise pretty difficult disease to get. Thankfully, it's uh, way harder to get HIV AIDS than it is to get Corona, for example, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not passed by the air. Um, and it's, it's passed in only, you know, if you have bloodline exposure to someone else's blood or semen, right? Or other bodily fluids and not including saliva, right? Uh, so we're talking about sexual body, bodily fluids uh, is the only way to get, or blood is the only way to get this disease. Thank goodness, right? Otherwise, we'd, <laughs> we'd have a lot more. Uh, I mean, the devastation from HIV AIDS has been horrific. Uh, in this country and uh, globally, and, and yet it would be so much worse, right, if it were airborne or uh, otherwise easily communicated. Um, so anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, one particular group that uh, is particularly at high risk for HIV exposure are gay men uh, through sexual acts that involve uh, semen and blood contact, right? Uh, and so what happened by the early 1980s, 81, is that doctors <clears throat> are now treating wealthy white people in their doctor practices in Beverly Hills <laughs> and New York City. Um, and they've got this crazy, crazy disease that manifests itself in a weak immune system in people who are like 25, um, cancer, skin cancer that's very rare, seen only in people in their 50s and 60s with Mediterranean bloodlines called Kaposi's sarcoma is what I'm talking about. Th this is a disease that now people in their early 30s are getting. And the only connective tissue, again, amongst this clientele of white upper middle class folks is that they're gay, right? And this is when the alarm bell goes off in the United States. Oh my God, we have a pandemic on the loose. Uh, as of 1981, what the doctors were saying is, it's gay men. They The first name for AIDS was GRID, gay-related immune de immunodeficiency, right? It was so clear to these doctors that it was a gay illness. Um, completely untrue, right? Because for every gay, white gay man that's got the illness in 1980, there's dozens of non-white, lower economic class folks in the United States who have it as well, right? But there we are. One of the things that stands out to me in the HIV AIDS story too, is that it really, one of the things that really galvanized the, the public, and by that I mean the white public into action, was when a young white boy kind of kind of this this image of like this pure young white boy got AIDS. Therefore, now we're going to pay attention. Yeah, yeah, because he didn't get it sexually. And, you know, he was 12 or so. Uh, he got it from a blood transf transfusion mm -hmm. is my understanding. I, I could be wrong on that fact. But Ryan White of of Kokomo, Indiana, I'll never forget. Right. Um, he, he was the one that sort of humanized the face of AIDS. And this was, you know, in the mid eighties, it wasn't 1981, 82. Uh, in fact, it might've even been a little bit later. Um, but Ryan was the one who allowed America to be more compassionate because what you have as of 1981 is that the public is like, there's a new killer illness out there and it's affecting only gay men. Okay. Who cares? Right. 
And two, shame on those gays, whatever they're doing is causing them to die, right? Um, when Ryan White gets HIV and then it advances to AIDS, um, then it's not shame on him, right? This starts to see, you start to see the more human dimension and a more humane response of people going, wow, these people are really victims of something that's brutally cruel that mother nature has uh, wrought on people for no good reason, just like COVID, right? Yeah. So in terms of the response, you've brought up COVID a few times, and it's it's an interesting comparison. Of course, not a one-to-one -one comparison to make very different diseases. Um, but I was kind of tracking how the government responded to COVID uh, versus HIV AIDS. So um, by the time... <laughs> It wasn't until 20,000 Americans had died that the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, even publicly acknowledged HIV. AIDS. Yeah, that's actually unfortunately correct. Ronald Reagan becomes president in January of 1981, and he doesn't mention AIDS until the last year of in the White House between 1987 and 88 after his friend Rock Hudson um, passes away of AIDS. Um, so he waited a long time. And, and just by comparison... Whether you agree with what the government did or not, um, by the time 20,000 Americans had died of COVID, we were like in lockdown and a vaccine was being developed. And months later, we had a vaccine. Yeah. And again, I, I mean, we have to respect the difference between these two viruses, right? The HIV virus is thankfully hard to get. Um, but the, your other point is that, the, especially in the early years, the mortality rate was as close to 100% as you could get, right? I mean, there are a few people that can get HIV and have some sort of crazy natural immunity uh, to the worst consequences of getting it. Um, but, it, it, you know, the way I was raised, probably the way you were raised, is that you get, you know, and this was in the 80s, if you get HIV, you're going to die. Right. And that is different than COVID. The mortality rate from COVID, I guess it ended up hovering in the worst of it around 2% and then quickly went down into the ones um, after that. That's different than a, a close to 100%. Right. Um, so that's so there's two things, you know, COVID is scarier because it's easier to get. Of course. But HIV AIDS is way scarier in terms of its mortality um, rate. And that, you know, it, inexcusable, right, that the president waits uh, seven years to utter the word, much less mobilize against this disease. So we have HIV AIDS in the U.S. It's seen as a as a gay disease, even though clearly it's been here for, as you explained, at, at least a decade, if not more. Um, yeah, there's then. a kid in 1969 in my hometown in St. Louis that died in city hospital of, of what we now know was AIDS, right? And yet, stories persist. You know, when I was growing up in the in the late 90s, I heard uh, what we'll call um, playground talk <laughs> back in my yeah. elementary school, because HIV AIDS was still around, but it wasn't nearly, uh, it didn't have nearly the impact that it did in, in the late 90s. And I remember hearing that it came about because a, a, 
flight attendant had slept with a monkey <laughs> like that. That's that's what had filtered yeah. down to fourth grade Sean on the playground in elementary school in the late 90s. Yes. And that, that flight attendant has now been outed as Air Canada's Gaetan Dugas, by the way, um, much to the chagrin of, of Gaetan and his family, I might add, who never wanted the name to be in the public sphere. But here it is. And it has been out in the public sphere since 1987. Right. So, and no, he did not sleep with a monkey. He never had a flight to Africa because <laughs> Air Canada did not fly to Africa. Okay. But uh, yeah. But yeah, that's what you heard on the playground. And uh, what's your sense? How much of it is true? <laughs> <laughs> As I've come to learn, it's very much not the story. So why don't you share a little bit about what really happened and, and who Gaetan really is? Because his name has, has been associated with this patient zero thing for decades. Right. So remember how scary HIV AIDS is circa 1981 all the way through, let's be honest, until we have a treatment regimen around 1993, 94, that keeps people alive in, in, in really hopeful ways, right? So that the mortality, by the way, the mortality level for HIV AIDS has, has sunk from you know, in the early years, near 100% to something that where it's now much more manageable, arguably, than, say, diabetes, right? That you can uh, live a, a, a very happy, prosperous life thanks to the drugs. But from, say, 1981, when, when the first, 81, 82, when the first news stories are appearing all the way till 1993, 94, 95, when the drugs start working, you've got over a decade of death, of fear, of anger, and of scapegoating. Damn these gays, right, for bringing this killer pandemic to America. And Gaetan was the perfect scapegoat for this disease. Um, I'll be honest, Gaetan himself dies in 1984. The patient zero myth dates from 1987 when a gay journalist by the name of Randy Schiltz publishes a book called The And the Band Played On, which is in a lot of ways great journalism, right? Because he does about 500 or 600 pages of the ins and outs of how America responded and ultimately failed to respond to the AIDS crisis from, you know, late seventies all the way to 1987 when it gets published. Um, but he, he also adds this salacious, uh, unfactual material where he insinuates hardcore insinuates, I might add, that it was this Air Canada flight attendant, beautiful, blonde, who knew as of 1981, 82, that he had cancer, which we now know meant that he had AIDS, um, but refused to stop having sex. And that's the crucial part of the story, that this guy, as a steward on Air Canada, was ultra mobile. He'd be in New in San Francisco one weekend, LA in the next weekend, Toronto the next weekend, New York the next weekend, um, that he was highly mobile thanks to his airline job. He was beautiful. He could have sex when he wanted. And he didn't stop having sex when 
it was clear that he was sick, right? Um, he told the CDC that he had on average about 250 sexual partners a year. This was in 1983, about a year before his death, right? Um, so uh, he's perfect as a scapegoat because it's the classic story of a gay man with an uncontrollable sexual libido being ridiculously irresponsible um, with his libido. I want to say in defense of Gaetan, his diagnosis in 1982 was cancer. Guess what? When you have sex with someone and you have cancer, you cannot give cancer to the other person. <laughs> so it's okay for those of us dealing with cancer it's okay to be sexually active all right and so that's this is what Gaetan was dealing with right is the the cloud of medical mystery in the early years about what his diagnosis meant right now by 84 we've got evidence that uh, it's sexually transmitted right it's a virus not cancer and it's sexually transmitted um, there's hunches that doctors have in 81, 82, 83, but, you know, concrete evidence comes, say, in 83, and, and Gaetan's dead in 84, right? So he's, you know, it's it's a little bit disingenuous to the Randy Schultzes of the world and those of us who perpetuate the patient zero myth to say that Gaetan was being selfish, conceited, um, and uh, irresponsible. By the way, for, for anyone listening that, that is interested in the patient zero uh, narrative, yes, of course, my book has a couple chapters on it, but also uh, a great scholar, uh, Richard McKay, Canadian scholar, has done a whole book on patient zero. So uh, check it out, uh, as well as mine, Plain Queer. So how did, how did that happen? How did that association happen? So uh, basically, um, Randy Schultz was desperate to get his book published. Um, and he and his editor, um, realized that there was very little interest in this book, this massive chronicle of 600 page chronicle of how Ronald Reagan effed over the gay community during the AIDS crisis, right? No one wanted to read it. Um, and so they made kind of, a, you know, a Faustian compact because they were told, oh, I know how you can get this published. I know how you're going to get it reviewed in the New York Times. I know how you're going to make a million bucks. You just kind of take these little narrative pieces that are already there about Gaetan Dugas, this patient zero guy, this, this promiscuous, conceited, uh, has no morals uh, character, and you just highlight that. So what they did is they dropped, uh, they, they assembled all the patient zero pieces into a press release and then kind of did some advanced kind of work with magazines to publish this material in advance. And it was all the patient zero stuff. And sure enough, uh, that press release goes out. And the next day, the New York Daily News, not known for its hardcore journalism, but great tabloid sensationalism, runs the headline the next day that says, the man who gave us AIDS. Wow, right? And from that moment, the patient zero myth that Gaetan Dugas somehow slept with a monkey in Africa and brought AIDS to America, right, becomes the lore of the playground, right? <laughs> um, 
And the reason is because we want it to be true. We want this horrible, awful disease that is uh, a freak of mother nature, right? Which, you know, we now know sometimes happens with pandemics. Um, this cruel, cruel disease. We wanted it to be true that there was some sort of malicious human agency behind it, that gay men were somehow responsible for this disease that was wreaking havoc, first and foremost on the LGBT community, again, because they're the ones with healthcare. Uh, but then, um, but on, you know, to the extent that, you know, all these other communities that were infected, plus, you know, by 1987, the regular straight community has to start using condoms for more than just childcare, has to start getting tested for HIV. And that really is the minute where it's sort of, uh, we, we need a scapegoat. We need, we need uh, someone to, to, to blame for this. And Gaetan was perfect for it. And if people want um, uh, a more detailed kind of personal story about the impact of HIV AIDS, make sure you go back and listen to the first episode of this mini series, which was with Michelle Evans, a transgender Air Force veteran who, who lost one of her close friends uh, to HIV AIDS. It's, it's a very poignant, powerful story. So you can find that earlier on the feed. There's still a lot of stigma around HIV AIDS, and but another thing that the community can be proud of is the advocacy kind of against that stigma. And we can turn to our other individual talk about GARE trainer to, to really hone in on that, right? There, there was this period back when he was alive where to have HIV AIDS had stigma, both you meant you were gay, so this was still a time of a lot of homophobia. Um, it meant you had this disease, lots of misunderstanding about how it could be communicated, including in Gare's own workplace. Um, why don't you move us to his situation? Yeah, so Gare um, is a flight attendant at United Airlines as of the early 70s, is my understanding, and um, uh, or at least mid-70s. Gare comes to United Airlines like many of these men who were hired in the 70s, um, he's got, uh, you know, a, a good high school education from rural Oregon um, and uh, moves to, uh, to California to a bigger city to uh, kind of that Harvey Milk moment of, of going to somewhere where you, you know you could be out and, and gay. And Gare ends up um, signing up with United Airlines. And he's kind of got, you know, this, this kind of great gay liberation world, as, as far as I can tell, right? Again, we don't have too much, we don't have much of a written record on, on Gary, Gary Trainer in his own words or, or even in the words of people who knew him well. Um, but, you know, by the late 70s, he's living between L.A. and San Francisco. He's, uh, you know, he's an out gay man. He's got a decent paying job with United Airlines. He's seeing the world. Uh, and it's a, a different experience than what he experienced in the Pacific Northwest uh, out in his, his town, you know. Um, by all accounts, it seems like he's a very uh, steady employee. Uh, sometime in these years, right, when the AIDS crisis is still underground, right? I mean, 1981 is when it, it, it doctors kind of announced that AIDS is on the loose and that they're concerned about it, especially in the gay community. But probably before then is when gay Gare contracts HIV because he's he, he gets sick for the first time 
in the spring of 1982. Actually, he, he may have been sick before then, but that's when he starts to get cancer treatments. In other words, by, by, the, by the summer of 82, he's got purple lesions on his skin, Kaposi's sarcoma, and is getting treated with radiation um, to uh, eliminate the cancer, right? Again, it's cancer. <laughs> um, and so you're giving someone who's immunocompromised chemotherapy, which is kind of awful. But um, but yeah, so this is Gare's life as of the summer of 82. He's going to chemo treatments um, and is also surprisingly able to continue working with many sick days. Um, but he makes the choice in sometime in, the, in that year to tell his employer, hey, here's what's going on. I have AIDS. And here's also a note from my doctor that says, except for when I'm in chemo treatment, I can work. So I want to keep working. This hits United Airlines right at this moment before the public starts to kind of panic more pronouncedly about the spread of AIDS and um, so forth. So Gare is able to continue working for several months as United is trying to assemble its first ever medical policy on employees with AIDS. That comes out in 1983, and uh, it's written by their medical doctor who was based at John F. Kennedy Airport, which used to be a place where United Airlines <laughs> serves, but no longer. Uh, they moved over to Newark. Um, but um, the, the JFK uh, MD for United Airlines wrote uh, what was ultimately a company-wide memo that said, uh, in, in part, it's, it's good. Hey, um, don't worry. There is no evidence that AIDS can be transmitted through casual contact, which is exactly what fellow flight attendants wanted to hear. By this time, they've noticed a few of their uh, co-workers getting sick. Um, they've seen the purple lesions, right, on people like Gare. And they've started to get worried, right? What if I bring this home to my home, to my family, to my kids? Um, what are my risks? So um, the the medical note from United United's physician was trying to be reassuring to them that they were at little to no risk, Um but was also trying to be a little bit prude, <laughs> given that this was the early 80s. And so he, he said, there's no need to worry because all the evidence speaks to the fact that this is transmitted through, quote, bodily fluids. Um, and that's as far as he explained. He didn't mention the word blood and certainly didn't mention the word semen, right? And so you could see a, a flight attendant or a pilot or a gate agent reading this memo and going, bodily fluids? Oh, my God. He, like, this guy, like, you know, 
he was talking to me and some saliva came out of his mouth and it ended up on my body. Like, what am I going to do? You know? <laughs> so um, it, it, it sort of reinforced panic in a way. And again, this is, you know, shame on the 1980s for being so uh, sexually prude, right? Uh, this is the Reagan years and family values were in and the religious right was part of the Reagan coalition and they did not want open and frank conversation. Obviously, the Reagan didn't write the memo. It was corporate America that wrote the memo. But you can see the ethos of the time was uh, was such that open and frank talk was not encouraged. And and this sort of complicated the scenario as well. Let's put it that way. Um, United, in the course of the following months after this memo, also creates a secret policy in which any employee that manifests as having AIDS is not fired, but is put on permanent medical leave. Um, so Gare is, even though his employers have known for a few months that he has AIDS um, and is seeking treatment, but his doctor says he's okay to work, all of a sudden, he gets called in and he gets put, taken offline. He can't work anymore and he will never work another day at United Airlines, right? Uh, so this is the injustice, right? I have a disease. It's not communicable in a workplace unless I'm having sex with someone, which, you know, there's other grounds to fire someone if they're having sex in the workplace. Um, and... Uh, you know, I'm also, uh, my doctor says it's okay, I can work, I'm healthy. So why are you depriving me of the right to work? This is 1983. This is uh, about 10 years before, you know, Denzel Washington and Tom Hanks win a, <laughs> an Oscar for Philadelphia, right? Um, and I believe that's a 1993 movie uh, about right, a person with AIDS who is unjustly fired for for from his job right um but gary's 10 years ahead of that right and that's where the story starts he he combines with his labor union um the united uh, airlines flight attendants labor union which is now the afa the association of flight attendants uh they may have had a different name uh, at that time but the afa uh supports gare um sues the company and demands that gare gets his his uh, job back. Um, it goes through a labor arbitration case, sort of like a courtroom case, right? Medical professionals are interviewed, uh, experts of all kinds, etc., and so forth. And what seems to be one of the very, very first cases of a person with AIDS winning one of these legal cases Gare wins the right to go back to work at United in 1984, I believe, is when the decision comes down. This is groundbreaking uh, for people with HIV AIDS across the United States. Uh, it sets the precedent that the Supreme Court is going to also uphold in a different case in 1987. Right. So that after 1987, at least in workplaces that have any sort of government funding, um, you can't get fired if you have AIDS as long as your doctor says it's OK to keep working. 
So, so Gare becomes a bit of a civil rights hero here, uh, which is pretty good from, for a, a rural kid from Oregon. <laughs> and yet no one remembers his name. And yet no one remembers his name. Uh, and that's the kind of the personal tragedy. By all accounts, uh, from what I could find in the labor union archives, Gare, when he contracts the, the illness, is still healthy enough, obviously, to work, even though he's getting chemo and, these, and obviously has to be run down and have you know nights where he can't sleep. He's uh, volunteering at, in L.A. He was in L.A. at the time at a group called the Shanty Project, which kind of used new age medicine uh, to uh, support people with AIDS. A really cool, sort of one of the very first grassroots groups in the United States uh, to support people with AIDS. He also joins uh, the Los Angeles uh, People with AIDS uh, uh, um, activist group uh, and gets put on the LA, uh, the Los Angeles County um, AIDS Action Network. So he's, he's actually uh, mingling with politicians uh, and doctors making AIDS policy for the city of Los Angeles. And at one point, he even travels to a national conference, the very first national conference of NAPWA, the National Association for People with AIDS. He um, is someone, even as his life energy is being threatened by this killer illness, uh, he's always giving back. It's freaking incredible how much uh, this man must have cared. What happened when he got this right to work back? So United Airlines now recognizes that they have to bring Gare back to the workplace. However, they are completely unwilling to do so uh, for fear of coworkers about their own safety and for fear of passengers. What would a passenger say if they see lesions? What would a passenger say if they're being served their food by someone who is, is visibly perhaps looks gay and visibly perhaps looks sick, right? And so United refused to countenance putting Gare and others in his position back on the, um, the regular kind of work schedule. So what they decided to do is that they, uh, United Airlines created a policy where they paid people with HIV AIDS to stay home for the rest of their careers. As long as they were alive, and had doctor's notes that said that they were healthy enough to work, United would say, okay, well, don't come to work, but here's your paycheck anyway. This is a policy that lasted into the, into the, within 10 years of today. They were still paying people to stay home because they had HIV AIDS. Uh, it's pretty scary the amount of uh, intransigence and fear that it was behind this policy. So Gare spends most of the rest of his life, he dies in 1987, unfortunately, um, as a United Airlines employee, um, but is never, uh, never puts the uniform on again, but he gets all his paychecks, all his medical uh, insurance through the company uh, until he can no longer work. Uh, pretty crazy. Uh, the other way that Gare appears is by the end of his life, he's kind of moved to San Francisco from LA um, and is, is kind of close, is friends with many people who are going through uh, HIV AIDS, uh, knows he's, there's a beautiful note from one of his nurses that at uh, San Francisco 
hospital where, where people with AIDS are being treated. Um, just, you know, just kind of love and kindness in all places. He talks about, you know, I just heard Rock Hudson went to Paris. Maybe I'm going to go to Paris too to get this cool treatment that is kind of cutting edge, even though it's not approved in the United States. He's always trying uh, and hoping and, and fighting, um, until, until the end. Uh, he, the, the one other way that, that really the only way I guess that, that Gare is sort of immortalized is, uh, his name is on the AIDS quilt. Um, I've, apparently from what I was told, uh, by, by the person who worked in the AIDS quilt office in San Francisco in 1987, uh, a distraught, man came in one day was just kind of bawling and he said um i've got a list of 40 of my friends who have died and there's one of them right um and he said i need i need their names on on the quilt so so yeah gear made it onto the quilt that day um with volunteers who probably never knew him uh making uh, a patch for him with with his name and some glitter. Uh, and so he's still there. And the quilt has been digitized so people can actually, and Gaetan is on there too. Yeah. Um, and the quilt was also talked about in the Michelle Evans episode we talked about. You can go look up uh, all those names if you want to see them yourself. So a lot of the stories that you've shared over the last hour are in your book, Plain Queer. Yeah, P L A N E. There's a play on words there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's a good point. Thank you for clarifying. This is so, about aviation and queerness. <laughs> and a striking cover image, but that's a story for another time. But uh, you wrote that book, uh, you did a lot of the research during a fellowship at the Smithsonian, correct? Yeah, so uh, the Smithsonian was, th this was my PhD dissertation as well. I, I did uh, a, a PhD program at the University of Texas and uh, and so started the research by, you know, going to the archives of Pan American Airways and then, you know, but you can't, you can't find anything on, say, the AIDS crisis there. So um, went to uh, the labor union archives, as I mentioned, <clears throat> that, uh that kind of had, uh, that kind of opened me up, not just to, to Gary's file, right, uh, and his fight with United Airlines, but several other men uh, who were United Airlines employees in the 1980s that were going through the same thing, fighting their their employer as they were, you know, tr struggling to live and ultimately died. Uh, just really awful stuff. But um, so that's where it started. And then, you know, yeah, the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. gave me uh, a place to kind of put the the finishing touches on the on the book and uh, and do some some research in the Washington area. Uh, and it was really a great experience, too. Yeah, and we're an Air and Space Museum podcast, not the Air and Space Museum podcast, Museum of Flight, Air and Space Museum podcast. And a lot of times we talk about the air and space part, but not the museum part. So I, I wanted to focus on that for a few minutes. How, how did being in that museum environment kind of allow you to do some of the research that maybe you weren't able to previously or, or did it? Did you find that it lets you approach the topic in any different ways or connect you to resources? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, th does being in a museum devoted to aviation kind of help tell these stories? I think the answer is yes and no. I, I, I was energized personally by 
um, not just the exhibits, right, where, you know, that was so committed to flight and really helped me kind of understand, you know, the technical aspects of the kinds of things that I was talking about, this relationship between workers and airplanes, right? But also just the the staff, like the the curators at a place like the National Air and Space Museum are just sort of top-notch scholars who focused, you know, they, they, they live, sleep and breathe, um, airplanes and aviation. So that was great. Um, but I, you know, and, and this is a struggle for, for all aviation museums. I think we get sucked into the things and the technology, the, the planes themselves, the engines, et cetera. And we, we have a harder time telling the story of the people, right? Um, especially people like, Gary, right? Who are gay men with limited, you know, education, no fault of his own, but he's, he's not an engineer. He's not a scientist. He's not a, a test pilot. He's, you know, he's not even a soldier, right? So where do we find people like Gary Trainer and Gaetan Dugas in aviation museums? It's, it's a tricky thing, I think, to, to kind of create museums that speak to that diversity of experience and that tell the hard stories of, of aviation, right? This is not a glorious and glamorous story, except that, um, you know, because it, it's not great that United Airlines um, laid people off, effectively refused to let them work for having AIDS. It's not great that Southwest Airlines refused to hire men into the 1980s, right? These are embarrassing stories of, of flight. Um, and yet, right, this is part of our history. This is part of our legacy. So as I was there, I was, I was kind of like enthralled with how much I had to kind of work with, but also very aware of, of how little uh, our museums uh, currently offer in terms of telling these other sides of aviation history. Yeah, and you know, I, I could speak from being on the museum side. It's generally not from a lack of desire. It comes from a lack of what we I, call material culture, and it's exactly what you you said. And that's one of the folks who've listened to this miniseries have hopefully heard kind of the call to action at the end of the episodes that that we're hoping that this is a chance to uh, collect more stories and kind of get it out there that the Museum of Flight is interested in in yeah, yeah. hearing these things and and telling these stories and our our struggle is always like we'll use Gar as an example. I, I run our social media at the museum. When I came across this story in your in your writing, I wanted to share it. Uh, and being I think on social media are great for right because you've got the social media blast you've got the opportunity to to have guest lectures you've got the opportunity to do workshops it's not just the the things the exhibits that that museums do there are also these these places where we can kind of further our knowledge and deepen our appreciation of aviation even in ways that that, that don't tell uh, a thing-based, artifact-based story. So, well, and but that even even that kind of illustrates the the struggle with telling stories of marginalized people, including LGBTQ plus folks, people with AIDS. Um, when when I wanted to share Gare's story, 
I needed some sort of image of something because this is going out on Instagram. So like yeah, you gotta right. have a picture. And I I could not find anything. Like it, it took me a while to figure out what was going to be the stand-in so that there's at least something visual to catch people's attention. And that's where the struggle comes in from the museum side and why it's so important that places like the Smithsonian, places like the Museum of Flight are, are getting it out there and, and letting it be known. There, there's a sign when we revamped our World War II exhibit a couple years ago where we kind of just put it front and center in the exhibit. Like, stories are missing, and we know this. Um, I, another social media post I did, speaking of World War II, we had um, – there's a, there's a day of the year called Love Letter Day, and um, I found some love letters in our archives that people had written from World War II back – guys had written to their sweethearts back home. And I wanted to make sure that we were including different perspectives in the story. And I know just from my own research and work that there were a lot of gay men writing letters to their their sweethearts back home, too. But those don't exist anymore. They were either written in code or they were found and destroyed. The, the only thing I could find in our archives was an oral history from a World War II fighter race talking about how someone in his squadron uh, did not use very flattering terms, was caught uh, writing a letter to a man. Uh, and that's like the only love letter reference. So it's like, and this is a discussion again for a whole nother day. And in fact, we do talk about this on a different episode in this midi series that will be coming out later. Of like, How do you even acknowledge the absence? Like, how do you tell the story in the absence of stuff? And, and that is a struggle. Yeah, I, I'll have to say, like, the, the whole impetus of my book, like, the thing that got me onto this topic in the first place is I was sitting in the archives of Pan American Airways there at the University of Miami. For those of you who are Pan Am freaks, you should visit the, the, the library there. Um, and there, you know, the, when you go through old papers, they're usually in big boxes and then they're subdivided into folders, right? So um, there's this one folder I see amongst flight attendant paraphernalia called male stewards. <laughs> I'm like, well, this is interesting. So I open it up and there's an article of Pan American Airways newsletter from 1972, the year that they um, put start hiring men because of the court case that forced them to hire men. And the, the story in the newsletter is, Oh, by the way, Pan Am used all the, all the steward, all the flight attendants at Pan Am were men from all the way from the first one in 1929, 1930, all the way till 1941 uh, when, um, when World War II starts, then they hire women. I'm like, well, that's fascinating. And then they're like, and then there was this court case in the 60s where a guy applied to be a Pan Am steward and, and Pan Am told him no, and he sued and he won. And I'm like, well, that's fascinating. I've never heard about that. And, and so I, I go to the, the archivist at the University of Miami and I'm like, look at this folder and listen to all this history. Where are the documents for that? And he kind of looked up at me and he said, Phil, I think you just found your book topic, didn't you? <laughs> and it's all about the absence of stuff. For those of us who write queer history, we have to be very attentive to those freaky moments where people, where either documents talk or oral histories talk, as you were talking about, Sean, 
Um, and it's like, wait, that's weird. Where did, where's the rest of the evidence for this? And that's where our journey starts, right? I'm curious for you, was it cathartic in any way to be doing this research in the halls of power of the Smithsonian? Um, I, I think more broadly, uh, as someone from the age of four <laughs> growing up, so I grew up in, in the suburbs of St. Louis, and for me, the most exciting thing that could happen was to like when someone was visiting us and we had to go pick them up at the airport. Right. And <laughs> like, <laughs> I got to go in and I got to see this sign of all the places you could fly that day. Right. And then you could watch the jets land and it's just like, wow, I, I so want to be, I want to be part of this world. Right. Where, uh, my life wasn't as tied to the suburbs of St. Louis, right. Stultifying as they are. <laughs> um, and so, you know, from the, the time I was a kid, I always had a fascination with aviation. It didn't manifest itself the way it does with so many people that, you know, I was making model airplanes and wanting to be a pilot or, or wanting to be a flight attendant. None of that, none of that was in me. It was more just travel and be a part of this kind of cosmopolitan world that existed above my head as it was flying over my house in St. Louis. Um, and ultimately it was deeply satisfying. I have to say to write this book that kind of chronicle that was my, my way of participating in the air world. Uh, that's super cool. And, and I'm continuing to write about the air world. I just think it's just, one of the most fascinating spaces. Well, Phil, thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time and sharing these stories. Remind people the title of your book. Yeah, so uh, again, the, the title of the book is Plain Queer, P-L-A-N-E, Queer, Gender, Sexuality, and AIDS in the History of Male Flight Attendants. And my name is Phil T. Meyer. That's T-I-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Phil, thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. And special thanks to our donors. Phil talked in this episode about the importance of grappling with difficult stories, and your monetary support enables us to keep bringing those vital discussions to audiences around the world. If you'd like to check out Phil's book, you'll find a link in the show notes. You'll also find a link to the episode featuring Michelle Evans that I referenced and also a few other episodes that I pulled from the show's archives where I interviewed female flight attendants if you'd like to learn more about that perspective. The show notes are at museumofflight.org slash podcast. Did something in this episode stand out to you or are you an LGBTQ plus person in aerospace with an experience that you'd like to share? We're leaving space for listeners to react to what they've learned this season. You can send your story to podcast at museumofflight.org. If we collect enough stories, we'll do a follow-up episode where we share your reactions, of course, with your permission. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you downloaded us from. It really helps new people find the show. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>